Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. I'm your host, Phil Dark, and I'm here with your other host, Brandon Stiver. Uh, We are excited, as always, to bring to you another amazing conversation we were able to have with a woman that I respect greatly. She is a fellow uh, attorney. I'm really kind of a recovering attorney. She's still practicing, um, but she's doing it in a country that is far, far away from where I am recording this right now. So Brandon, um, first of all, a little bit of how you're doing. Secondly, um, who do we have today? Since I've pumped it in, like everyone's wondering. Yeah. Of course, they've yeah. already clicked the links. So they know who it is, but that's okay. They know who it is. But but if if they don't know her or haven't heard her, she's worth the hype. Absolutely. Uh, uh, but as far as me, I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, uh, life is life is going on. God is faithful. <laughs> <laughs> Not too much to update on. But uh, the the um, person that we have on today is is Anya Gertzen. Um, Anya is doing really great work uh, down in Paraguay, connecting with people, um, really just engaging um, child welfare to kind of just drive some change um, in some really cool and unique ways. Um, she's the coordinator for Paraguay Protects Families, which is this movement of people um, from government, people from the community, uh, churches, uh, people that are jumping in to say, hey, we want to do more about uh, helping kids get into family. And and you're going to get that in this podcast. So she has a lot of other affiliations. She has a YWAM background, which we love. Uh, she has a, a degree in law, as you mentioned, and and she's just a, a really great thinker. So um, she's, she's uh, a, a second generation uh, to Paraguay. Uh, so she has a cool background story. I was just talking with somebody the other day that's involved with uh, Paraguay and um, just uh, people that left uh, Eastern Europe a long time ago and now they're in Paraguay and she's she's just uh, such an interesting person with such a cool background and and uh, engagement within the OVC space so we're just so excited for uh, the opportunity to get a talk with Anya today. All right, well, let's get to it. And this is an interview you got to do with just you and her. I'm, I'm definitely oh, yeah. envious that I was not able to be a part of this. But, folks, you are in for a treat, so we're going to get right to it. Well, I am uh, so excited to be getting into uh, the podcast and welcoming uh, a new friend to me and somebody that I just find to be really doing some inspiring work in Paraguay. So Anya Gertzen, it is uh, so excited. Welcome to the Think Orphan podcast. Thank you. Really excited to be here and such a privilege. Well, uh, you know, I've enjoyed kind of learning a, a bit about the work of, of Paraguay Protects Families over the last several months and, and just kind of tracking along with uh, some of the initiatives that you guys are, are running there. So um, I want to get into that, but let's, let's start with you. I mean, what's, what's your background uh, working with, with at-risk children, working, working in orphan care? And uh, really, I mean, how did God lead you uh, into the space that you're in now uh, working there in Paraguay? It's uh, it's a really great question because that's really what it always comes back down to, and, um, and and I think I can only say that this is really him. This is this is only God. Um, this is one of the truths that I just come to realize again and again. Uh, why someone from Paraguay, which is a relatively unknown country, I think, to the for most of the world, um, how, how and someone like myself who uh, was a little bit of a a misfit, culturally speaking, um, how did I get involved in this? Um, and, and I think the how God calls us is really important because in the end, it just reminds us again that, is, that it's him. It's not our vision. It's not my vision. It's not our idea. It's really him that's doing it. And um, so in my case, um, actually, I was just a kid. Um, like I said, I was a bit of a misfit. I grew up as an... Um, as a missionary kid in Paraguay, we are descendants of uh, European descent refugees here in Paraguay and um, a little bit of Canadian background growing up in a, in a Latino community. Um, I was known as a foreigner in my own, own town. And um, 
And so I thought I always knew what I was going to do. I had this plan. I was a dreamer, uh, but I sort of had a set plan. I'd be a teacher just like my parents. And then one night God spoke to me and um, I remember so clearly uh, we were driving into the city and I, I was in the car with my family I'm the youngest in my family, great family with all our issues, but you know, great family. And I look outside and there's a small girl on the curb and she, it was drizzling. It was rainy. There was a lot of traffic. She was really near the traffic. And yet there she was sitting on the curb, reading her comic strip from the newspaper. And she was just so completely oblivious to her situation. She was even laughing, I think. And it just struck me, me sitting safe and sound, you know, with my family, dry, protected, laughing, you know, um, living as a child should. And then her in her situation. And it just struck me so clearly that that was not right. Something was not right. But being a kid, you know, you have a moment and then it passes and I forgot. And that night I just couldn't sleep. I didn't normally have that kind of issue. And I remember suddenly just sensing or hearing, not quite sure, God's voice speak to me and tasking me basically with a challenge, give a home to these that do not have one. And it was so powerful that I, I just had to either say yes or no. I knew I had to respond. And all I did was say yes. And I fell asleep. And, uh, and the next day, uh, you know, maybe it was just a weird experience um, of a child. But for me, that was so clear. And I think what most um, really has impacted me is the fact that my parents heard me and they believed me and they walked alongside me and have ever since uh, because they understood that when God calls, it's because he has a purpose behind it. And so it's really been a wild journey. Um, I think um, in my case, it really uh, gave me a foundation to work from uh, because I was, was and wasn't from Paraguay. I kind of had a loose um look towards the horizon and seeing where God wanted to lead me. And in the end, he took me around the world. I had really incredible experiences learning with YWAM, with Viva Network. Um, and then I ended up coming back to Paraguay to study law school and, and you know, preparing to do work in this field as a professional. But it still always comes back to that calling and knowing that this this thing that we're called to is really something that comes from God's heart. It's what breaks his heart. It's what he is doing. And he can call anyone at any age or any background, basically, to do his purpose. Yeah, no, that's really beautiful. And, and how old were you when when God, you know, gave you this inclination? You were still a child. How old were you, would you say? I was 10 years old. Yeah. 10, years, 10 old. years old. That's awesome. I mean, of course we see this biblically, we see the calling of Samuel, for example, you know, where he's similar to you laying yeah. in his bed and, and God starts to call him uh, into, into a particular ministry. And um, you know, one of the things that I'm passionate about is a child's agency. And uh, that was even you as a 10 year old exercising uh, the agency that God gave you and, and he's speaking to you. And, you know, there's actually, um, a few uh, parallels that I even see uh, in, in my own journey. I was studying to become a teacher as well. That's what I thought I was going to be. Um, I felt God call me to uh, go. And uh, for me, it was, I felt called to go and run a children's home. Um, you know, as, as uh, you um, got this call as a 10 year old, um, I assume that God brought you into a time of preparation. You mentioned some of the people you were connecting with, you uh, studied at university, you did YWAM, you did Viva Network. Um, I mean, what was kind of that, uh, what did it, what did it look like to, to, to do a home where were you inclined towards doing like a children's home or, or in, in your native Paraguay, I know you're a MK, my kids were MKs for a number of years. So I, I, I just love that, that semblance as well. Um, but did you feel inclined towards an orphanage, a children's home? Um, and if so, what kind of led that sense and, and what was that journey like? You know, it's really interesting because that was that was exactly my first reaction. And and I'll clarify, I didn't know any orphanages till then. I hadn't heard of any. It, um, I don't think I'd visited or read about anything till then. Um, God spoke to me about providing a home. And immediately my heart was broken 
for so many children. And I think that happens to many of us. Uh, God breaks our heart. And uh, we know that what we need and want each of us is a family, just like I was living, you know, a personalized one-on-one sort of environment family. And yet I think we quickly see this need that is so massive. And then we want to just respond to it all. So my immediate imagination and dreaming, since I was a dreamer, was to 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 build a children's home, you know, have lots of children, care for them all. I think I was inspired a bit by this novel, Little Men. Uh, you know, some people from back then might remember the sequel to Little Women. And, and I just had this idea and I started uh, down a path of reading, investigating. I checked up all the missionary manuals, um, you know, tried to find out what, what existed. I then got to know a children's home or two here in Paraguay. And, I, and yes, exactly. I dreamt of building a children's home. And to the point that t- that was several years um, after high school, uh, I was gifted from my parents uh, with a volunteer service, which you had to pay for, and I was able to go to Brazil. So I looked up orphanage in Brazil and, and ended up with YWAM. And that experience really was a game changer for me because I went with the expectation of understanding what it is to serve in an orphanage, which, you know, it was. I went to serve in a very family-like a small children's home for kids with HIV. There were only 13 kids, you know, it was set up to be like a family. That was the whole purpose. But I very quickly realized that as much as we try to make it like a family, the kids know better. And, and there I was, you know, a, a volunteer uh, with trying to be the mother of five kids under age five for, you know, for several months. Um, seeing older kids just struggle with, you know, manipulation and, and things that I know today to be attachment disorder, just because they had so much turnaround and they didn't have the stability and security uh, that we had, that, a, that a family can normally provide. And so I just realized that somehow we were missing the mark with, you know, with this way of trying to protect them. And it still took several years after that. After Brazil, I, I was able to go to Canada. I have relatives there. I was able to save up, work, you know, uh, prepared to do YWAM school. I did training with children at risk. First, the discipleship training school, and then the children at risk school in Switzerland. And God just spoke to me in such great ways. Uh, eventually spoke to me about advocacy, using the, the Spanish word, abogacia. And, and I realized, okay, maybe, you know, coming back to Paraguay as an as an advocate, as a legal advocate would be the way to go. And I felt strongly about that. So coming back in 2006 um, to study law, which is a whole, you know, another six years, I was um, completely exposed really and lost once again, really, really lost because nobody studies law to work with children, at least not here and not then. And, And then the law school also, they gave absolutely zero focus on, you know, um, advocacy for the vulnerable. It was all about other things in law. But God was so faithful in guiding and he connected me to Viva Network. I ended up being the director for several years. And together with our colleagues um, in Viva, Viva Network partners with different local ministries and among them, there were also children's homes. And, And together we started to really see and understand what the real needs of kids are both those that are suffering uh, in their families, you know, with with vulnerability, with negligence, with abuse, and also those that are in institutions but are still uh, waiting to belong and realizing that even though that's already a a protective response, but it's still not providing them with what they really need. And so I think it was in that time that it really just hit home the calling that God is... is, um, making to his church, to each of us, to really, uh, really respond to these the way he does as a father. Yeah, no, that's, that's beautiful. And, and, um, you know, what, what I hear, you know, one of the things that, um, that I hear out there, um, and, and, you know, I, I, there's some, there's some truth in it, but it's also something that we really have to kind of monitor one of these, uh, cliches that we use, um, is, uh, how does it go? Uh, God doesn't, uh, call the qualified. He qualifies the called or something, something to that effect. And, um, you know, I, I think that there's, um, 
definitely some some truth in that type of sentiment. Um, you know, it's God calling David the shepherd boy. Um, it's you know, it's it's like we we get those kind of images. Um, one thing that we want to be careful about, though, especially when it comes to important things like child protection, is that we don't just leave it there. So if we say, you know, David wasn't qualified, he was the youngest of his brothers. He was just a shepherd boy. He was, you know, David didn't stay in that position, though. He actually went through a process to, to actually become qualified um, for the things that he was setting his hand to. And what I hear in your story and what I hear in a lot of the colleagues within the OVC sector is, yes, we weren't necessarily, I was not, I was not qualified for the calling that I felt I received, but that was not an excuse to just remain stagnant. Um, you saw um, that there was actually some some things that you could partake in, whether that was the children at risk courses through YWAM, whether it was getting a law degree, um, you started to actually go through that qualification process to be well suited for the position that you're in now. And, and I just think that that's so incredibly critical and something that we really can't overlook, to be honest. Um, so, you know, and now, oh, go ahead and jump back in. I would love to hear more. Just to mention, and, and I think this is one of the things that we observed a lot working with Viva Network, there's a lot of well-intentioned um, servants of God wanting to respond. But if we don't prepare, if we don't really get the qualifications necessary, then we can do more harm than good. And I think this is something that, that we've just really appreciated. I've appreciated being able to learn from others, walk together, you know, go through either professional route, doesn't always have to be a profession, but there's so many ways that you can really be equipped to, to make sure that you know and understand and have the best best tools to do um, as best as a job as possible and, and also really work with others, not reinvent the wheel, you know, see what's out there. And I think that that learning journey has meant so much for us. And of course, we're still walking down that path um, and, and still really encouraging others to, to join us in being properly equipped, you know, not just because they're vulnerable kids doesn't mean we just go in and do whatever. They need yeah. the best of quality. They need preparation. And, and this is what we're here to do together as a body is prepare each other and, and make sure that we can do excellence. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and definitely a shout out to Viva Network. If our listeners haven't checked out Viva Network, they're doing great work. We'll uh, post a link in the show notes. Um, one of the resources that they developed is this book called Celebrating Children. It's right behind me here on my uh, on my uh, um uh, shelf here. We had uh, Greg Birch earlier on uh, this season. Uh, he's uh, had some affiliation with Viva Network as well. Um, just really great as far as looking at community resources and child protection and, and other activities. So definitely encourage people to check out Viva Network as well, because we got to get equipped. Um, and that's even what this yeah. podcast is all about. Um, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to learn from people that are doing the work like Anya, like many others that have been on the show. So it's really great. Um, you know, and as you've kind of gone from this, you know, uh, a little girl, uh, receiving a, a, a calling and a vision going through this process of pursuing missions, engaging with, uh, at-risk children directly. Um, and then, you know, going through this qualification process, um, now God has led you to this point where you are the coordinator for Paraguay protects families, um, which is this national movement, uh, in Paraguay, um, you know, what is, what, what is PPF all about? How do you incorporate practitioner organizations, churches, individuals um, through, you know, uh, Paraguay Protects Families? So why don't you explain with us a little bit about what you guys are up to down there? Okay. Well, um, I think I heard recently that uh, the Think Orphan podcast started up in uh, May 2016. So that's about the same time. Actually You've that been listening. You've been listening. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> So, and actually that's the same, about the same time that God brought a group of people together to start this movement called Paraguay Protects Families. And I think we might have the same roots. We, 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 um, it's a really long story, which I won't tell now, but somehow I managed to go to the World Without Orphans Global Summit. And, and I think um, also many of you were there as well, and probably a lot of the listeners in Thailand back in 2016. And at that summit, um, having gone already through that 
quite long journey of learning, of serving, of seeing so much. I didn't mention, but after Viva Network, I also worked uh, in government and adoptions and foster care in Paraguay. And I also worked uh, in Washington, D.C. in the regional offices for human rights in the area of children's rights. And then ended up coming back to Paraguay and was working alongside children's homes just as an independent consultant. So there was a long journey in between of, of just seeing and observing and, and working and feeling very often or most often very alone. Um, you know, expecting God to break through, but not yet seeing how it's going to happen. And that um, that trip and, and my participation and that of another colleague, he is from the Evangelical Alliance of Paraguay. Both of us somehow managed to go to Thailand and God just spoke to us in a whole new way. And we suddenly realized that he really can. <laughs> we knew it before, but we really witnessed that he really can awaken his church and make a difference for children. And that this vision that we sensed in our heart really could become a, a reality. And so when we came back to Paraguay, we, a couple of months later, we attended with a group, we attended also CAFO. Again, we received even more tools, super practical and, and just really inspiring. And in basically in, in June, 2016, when I shared that I remember sharing it via email, just some thoughts and a challenge to the network of different servants, most of them uh, directors of children's homes or leaders of some sort of, you know, child advocacy ministry here in Paraguay. And the response was unanimous. I especially remember one of the directors of the largest children's home in Paraguay saying, yes, I've been sensing this for a long time now. The time is now. Let's do it. And we got together, a business person, you know, facilitated his office. We gathered around, we were around 20 people representing different organizations, Evangelical Alliance, the Pastors Alliance, and then most of them children's homes, because that's, those were the organizations that already were active. And, and there was a lot of heated discussion that day. We, we shared the vision. We, we shared some resources. We know we watched some videos and we started discussing. And I remember for example, there was a lot of discussion whether or not foster care would really work, uh, you know, frustration about our adoption system in Paraguay, a lot of frustration about the government and the regulations that they were coming down on children's homes with. But we agreed on one thing, and that is that, yeah, God's vision really is for kids to be in a family. We knew that. We understood that, all of us. And we also knew that the church needs to get involved the church is unaware, but the church needs to get involved and we need, need to be a part of, of equipping the church and helping them understand families need to get involved, but they also need training. They also need to be equipped. Government needs to understand, but they also need to be trained. So basically we just saw the need to start working, you know, with all of these sectors. And, and we came up with those three things, you know, to do awareness raising, to do training across the board and to do uh, just public ad or government advocacy work to try to improve the system <clears throat> so that kids really could have a better, a better outcome with the kinds of decisions that were being made for the kids. And that was 2016. We just recently celebrated five years. We had an anniversary over Zoom because right now we're, we're still in uh, having a high number of, um, you know, the COVID outbreak. Um, so we'll have our, our festivities a little bit later, but we were just amazed to see what God has done. Um, who, what, what has been the movement? It's basically been a group of these organizations, you know, that have this shared vision um, that have been pushing forward to really, like I say, bring awareness to the church, but also just to the to the community, to society in general to start to bring training. And we've had a lot of help, you know, from the outside, SFAC, Casa Viva, World Without Orphans, just to name a few, um, TBRI, and, and more that have really given us such valuable tools that we have been able to, to learn CAFO as well, and then be able to multiply and start implementing in our, in our context. Um, we've seen some new foster care agencies start to develop very slowly. Uh, we've seen families starting to step up. We haven't seen the, the breakthrough just yet, but we also understand that, that it's a process and that, you know, God is, is slowly working and sometimes things just take a while, but there has been a change. We've had the opportunity to do government advocacy work and, and really be recognized 
as um, as a body of Christ, but working alongside government authorities, court authorities, and and trying to improve the system. Um, and so uh, I think we see how we can each play our part and really be a body. Um, and that's the that's the point of the movement, really to learn to be a body without saying that we're all walking hand by hand. Um, each one needs to carry out their role, and uh, but we try to do it in unity and try to multiply and engage more and more of the church across across our country. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, what I, what I hear in that answer and even just kind of the way that PPF has been positioned is there's a lot of collaboration um, and that's a high value for, uh, for 1 million home for our organization. That's a high you know value for Phil. I mean, he's been beating that drum for the last five years on the podcast. Collaboration is key and you guys have really done an excellent job to kind of coordinate amongst all those different entities. Um, and uh, I mean, and you guys are really addressing some some really key um, issues, you know, um, uh, that are facing children in Paraguay. Maybe you could just even help our, you know, as you guys are um, coordinating PPF and you're working with the government, you're working with the church, um, you're tapping into some of our friends at SFAC or World Without Orphans or, you know, these other uh, entities that many of our listeners will be aware of. Um, you know, you guys are addressing, you know, issues that are facing kids in uh, Paraguay. So maybe you could even just kind of help us understand what is the context surrounding at-risk children and orphans in Paraguay? Um, and, and is there any comparison between Paraguay and maybe some of those other surrounding Latin American countries? Maybe just share a little bit about the context that you guys are working in uh, with these children. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess our, our context is, is very similar to other countries in Latin America. Uh, Latin America is known for higher numbers of abuse, child abuse, uh, especially within the family environment, um, a lot of neglect. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's due to multiple factors, uh, very often also related to poverty, but there's also just many other, many other factors that, that are involved. And, and it's, we're really working on, on addressing it right at the root because it has to do with the culture and, you know, what is normal within our culture. And, um, and so there's just a lot of need of responding to what is a healthy family actually looks like. And we're actually right now in the process of starting up a parenting helpline to support parents and just come alongside them with counselor, phone counselors to be able to help them, guide them in, in their child rearing and, and make sure that they're actually safe families for these children. Uh, so these issues of abuse and neglect are the main reasons why kids get pulled into the system. Of course, and there's other things like uh, addictions, you know, violence of uh, more extreme violence, gang violence. Uh, you have kids on the street, which I'm sure many of you have uh, seen either in person or, or witnessed uh, around the world, really. And and that's always a hard one to tackle because anyone, even in our country, every new government that comes up, they expect the government to, you know, may, wave a magic wand and make all the children, street children disappear. And we know that it's a much, much deeper problem. And, um, and so we really need to get working with these kids and the families much more early on and, and not just see a repetitive cycle. Um, but yeah, that, that are the, those are the main reasons why kids are exposed um, or removed from their families and, uh, and then need alternative care. But I think also the reasons that, again, probably very similar to most Latin America is uh, our lack of family-based social services. Uh, we have a, quite a formal system as far as a court system. You know, you, kids don't go into a children's home except through a formal court order. But at the same time, we may have the whole structure and we have um, laws that are actually quite developed, very, very high standard uh, because there's been a reform process over the last 20 years. And yet the reality is way down here. Also, the standard is way up here while the reality is way down, way down below. And it causes a lot of um, mistrust, you know, uh, just lack of confidence in our government or what the laws say. And, and people end up taking literally justice in their own hands. We have a lot of uh, informal adoptions. We have a lot of informal child placing here and there passed around almost like 
I'm sorry to say, but almost like a puppy. And just because there, there is not, you know, a proper support and system and, and the need is so great. And so that's the system that we're working in. Um, and when I mentioned beforehand, the frustrations from the children's homes about the regulations from government, part of it is that, you know, because they, and I've been there myself, you can receive calls almost on a daily basis of authorities begging you to take in a child, you know, a baby, a, a group, a sibling group, a teenager, you know, the whole range. And, and there's just such a desperateness for providing care for these kids. Yeah. And yet at the same time, almost the same authorities uh, are saying, no, you know, you need to be a small family like home. You can't have more than that many kids. Um, you need to be doing this and that. And yet they don't provide the funding mm. for it. And so, I think this is the sort of conflict that Paraguay, and I know many countries in our region are struggling with. The government hasn't yet placed priority investing into kids. And, and so the, the response mechanism is very weak. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you're right that you can see that in other Latin American countries. Um, obviously, most of my experience has been in Africa. You see it there quite drastically, um, you know, and, and going back to something that you had mentioned earlier, I think that this is an important piece why advocacy is important. Um, we have to hold governments accountable to provide services that are actually going to reach children. Um, and that's that's part of the piece, you know, that we're looking at. And look, this is the same case here in the United States. You know, I was working in foster care in California and there's a overarching policy called the continuum of care reform. And to anybody working in global OVC, that word care reform, that really means something, but we look at care reform here in the States as well. Um, and there we have a higher capacity, but even in the United States, um, you know, there are, um, there's a lot of under-resourcing of, of services that that help children and families um, do better together. So you could see that right here in the U.S. You could see that in Paraguay. You can see that in other places, and it really highlights, you know, why it's important that we are looking at systems change, uh, why the role of advocacy is important to include. Um, you know, advocacy is not the end-all, be-all, but it's an important component that we have to have in addition to the service provision, um, in addition to making sure that uh, that the child welfare system has a range or menu of options, um, you know, for care settings and so forth. Um, and, you know, one of those care settings um, is, is foster care and adoption. Now, one of the things that you mentioned is um, that there's informal adoption, there's uh, child circulation, uh, which is, which is quite prevalent in uh, Latin American countries. Um, and, you know, I was looking through a number of different links and you can tell me if this statistic is accurate based on your understanding, but I was reading in one article that said in Paraguay, 90% of children without parental care are in institutions and only five live in accredited foster families. Um, so can you help us understand some of those uh, gaps that that kind of lead to this disparity um, from your experience and from working there? And um, why is it important to develop a more robust foster care system in Paraguay? So again, I was mentioning um, that our laws uh, are very clear. They're very up to date. They understand that children need families. And, and so there's been this uh, reform process over the last 20 years based on the Convention of the Rights of the Child. And, and you know, until recently this last year, uh, a new law was passed. And it's just very, very clear, the same continuum of care that you mentioned in California. We, we have that same continuum of care here as well, in theory. But in practice, um, there are, you know, those kinds of laws become, you know, what you call dead letter, unless unless the resources are really designated, unless the services really are there. And in our case, um, children's homes have appeared as a response to the need. They have been these charities that, you know, gather funds together. They do their own resources. Uh, most of them are not paid by government or they receive very little support from government. And they're just trying to respond to the emergency basically. Um, and so there's actually no uh, alternative care being provided by the government. And even though the government says and understands, so it has to be first and foremost, the birth family. If it can't be the birth family, it needs to be, you know, the, the relatives try to give them the support. 
But again, if we don't have any services yet that clearly provide that support, you know, what some countries call kinship care. Um, and so that, you know, you need to have professionals and, and people in the system working to locate those family members, make sure they're safe, you know, no, just, not just place kids with them, but actually make sure they're safe and supported. Um, and so we don't have that. And, and that becomes a huge stumbling block. Yeah. The third down the line would be uh, accredited foster families, but real foster families, not just any volunteer family that says, oh, we'll take the child. And then, you know, you don't know what happens in their home. They need support. They need to be prepared beforehand. They need to be walked along with. They need support after the child leaves. That's the only way foster care can really work. And in our country, uh, Paraguay actually is one of the first in our region to start developing foster care. Uh, back in 1999, actually, was the first government-run foster care. Um, a couple of years later, NGOs started it. And yet, it, those statistics that you read or, or mentioned um, are exactly correct. Until today, over 90% of the kids are in institutions and only very, very privileged few get to be in families. Yeah. And usually it's only the zero to three-year-olds because they are the ones who absolutely cannot be in, in residential care, you know, just wow. based on their needs. And yeah. so the main reason being uh, lack of resources. So we're, we've really been challenging. On one hand, we've been challenging our government how to how to invest, invest in their children. And I say government, obviously there's departments of government that absolutely understand are fighting for this, but it's the bigger, <laughs> it's the bigger picture of government that doesn't. And that's they, even those departments of government need our help as a community, as, as a network to try to um, really press forward in this and, and start seeing that change. Meanwhile, uh, we're really trying to grow some private foster care agencies, and we have a few coming out of the PPF network. Some are children's homes that are converting to a foster care program. Others are new foster care programs. Um, and so this is a way that we're trying to start breaking that that disparity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's but we'll awesome. need, we need support in that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's awesome. And, and that's, you know, about shifting the system of care. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I know what we'll hear in the United States is how broken foster care is and so forth. And, and that can very well be the case. Um, but at yeah. least at the very basis of it, we are trying to get kids into family. And there are a lot of things to work on in a fully, uh, in a, in systems where foster care is the priority, um, but where it's not the priority in places like Paraguay, you have to figure out how do we actually shift these priorities so that we can see kids that if they do need alternative care, it's at least alternative family-based care as opposed to a residential setting. Now, uh, the last question that I want to get to before we get into our, our last questions that we asked all of our guests, um, you know, shortly before the pandemic started, um, uh, Paraguay Protects Families was a part of this cross-government uh, review, and you guys were kind of leading coordinators on this. Um, can you just explain to us what that is and, and how it can be helpful for countrywide uh, care reform. Um, I, for me, I, it's something that I'm still learning about. I've enjoyed getting into the, the review and, and some of those learnings that you guys did, but can you help um, our listeners kind of understand uh, what that is and, and why, it, why it's important when we look at uh, care reform? Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned before, you know, we never, none of us want to, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And I think Paraguay and the same, I would almost say every country has already a lot of uh, progress made somehow, some, somewhere, someone has already made progress in, in reform. And in our case, I mentioned, you know, there's been a lot of reform over the last 20 years, but our, our systems are still fragmented. And, and what we just saw is each government institution or agency fighting for their own. And there was a complete lack of understanding of some basic numbers, just understanding how many kids are we talking about? How, why do they get stuck in the system? Uh, you know, the, the term that came out and became really public was uh, archived children because uh, their court cases that were filed, they were archived and they literally are forgotten by the court system. They're forgotten, but the kids obviously continue living somewhere in a children's home. And so the, it really took 
the intentionality and decision of our high-level authorities who came together. Uh, God really gave us grace and, and the opportunity to work with them. They came together. They gave mandate to doing this cross-government review to say, okay, let's look, let's cross-check our data, let's see what the issues really are, where are the bottlenecks, where, what's, what's going on with the children and what's the situation like, because only with that information can we really then come up with a solution plan and a roadmap forward as a government. And uh, it was it was really a huge, huge challenge. Um, and again, only possible, well, because God led and, and he really worked also through these authorities. Uh, so over this space of, or a time of several months, we had judges across the country, prosecutors, public defenders, offices for children's rights. You know, all of these different uh, key stakeholders in the system were bringing together data. We were doing surveys, uh, we did, um, consulting groups, focus groups, you know, with all the different sectors of society and government. And we also reviewed all the prior reports that have been done over the past 15 years, just to see what have been the, you know, what, what have they been seeing? What, what have the conclusions been? What have the findings been? And, um, but then the key was really to bring together Obviously not anyone, everyone, but the key uh, stakeholders of all the different agencies, we brought them together in a hotel for a week. We locked them in and we started reviewing those results. And, and so the first day or two, we were just analyzing the data and just finding those root problems. Uh, and then from there on, uh, we started saying, okay, so this is the reality. How do we address each of these main issues? How can we start developing a solution? Not one agency alone but together as a nation, you know, government, and then obviously together with, with society. So that's um, how a cross-government action plan was really developed. That was December 2019. Um, and, uh, and most importantly, what we think was most important was that we put numbers to it because an action plan is nothing unless it has a budget. So we were able to give an estimate of what that might cost so that the, the high level of government would understand you know, how could they come together to solve this problem? And we also were able to show what this, what the savings would be as far as social costs and even uh, financial costs in the long run, because we were showed how much a child's case can really cost the government. And, and we, we worked on some case, case studies to show that, just uh, random case studies. And so I think that the, was really important just to bring together all these stakeholders, come develop this plan together. There was press coverage, you know, the authorities really listened to us. They, we had a, you know, a public ceremony where it was presented. Um, and, and it was finally also approved a few months later by the Supreme Court and by the National Council for Children, which, you know, in the judicial and the executive government are the higher levels. Uh, and that was literally days before the pandemic hit. So that's the sad side of the story. Um, we had hoped that that plan could be put into action. But of course, pandemic changed uh, many things around the world. Um, but we have been seeing, you know, these the, the intentionality is still there. And, and while they're dealing with all the other emergencies, um, we're making steps forward. In fact, right now, there's meetings happening about how to move forward. Um, and this action plan with whatever is possible, at least to start changing the situation. I think the most important thing also was to realize that this was a national emergency. We tried to really highlight this is a national emergency that most of the country does not know anything about. And yeah. so we just wanted to draw attention to that as well. Well, wow, it's, it's really remarkable. Um, you know, just even when you think about, okay, 2016 is when you guys started to kind of convene around this, around this message and around this uh, addressing the needs of children and the needs for uh, systems change and care reform. And uh, to really, I mean, if you're looking at an, uh, just at the end of 2019 in just four years, you guys are able to execute this really incredible review. And, you know, I, I, I think 
a point of encouragement to our listeners is you don't have to be some super big entity, um, you know, that's going to reform the country of care. Um, you can be a missionary or, you know, or you could be, you could be, you know, anybody, you know, and, and there, there is such a, there's such a deficit when it comes to people that are active practitioners, um, or, or people that, that have gone through a process of learning and understanding their context, um, that, that there's nothing that says this person or that person, this organization, that small, that small organization can't do, uh, big things to, to start to initiate countrywide, uh, reform. And I, and I see that in, in what you guys are doing and the way that God has even just elevated you as a leader in this and, and the PPF movement to really be a catalyst, um, when it comes to seeing a uh, change in Paraguay. So, uh, I'm just, uh, really inspired. Uh, I'm learning a lot uh, from what you guys are doing uh this has just been um so awesome and and we're so grateful for your opportunity to uh that you took the opportunity to share with us um because we're we're just learning uh quite a bit now uh, anya we do uh, you're not quite off the hook yet uh <laughs> we do have uh two questions that we ask uh, all listeners uh whenever they come onto the show because this is a learning process right it's, yeah. it's something it's i've had to learn stuff you've had to learn stuff we all do um and one of the ways that we learn is is through people and through uh media so uh, what have you watched, read, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphaned and vulnerable children with excellence? Well, uh, I have always, for most of my life, been a very avid reader. And, um, and actually, it might be odd, but one of the first books that inspired me to advocacy uh, was a street lawyer, John Grisham. And it's it, Odd because that maybe has nothing to do with uh, with with uh, vulnerable children, but basically out of that, I understood that God can use someone with their qualifications and for a completely different purpose, for the purpose of helping vulnerable people. And and for me, that was an affirmation from God that He could use the the career as a lawyer for a whole different purpose, for his purpose, for his kingdom. And so that really, it blew me away. And it was an affirmation that, that um, has inspired me till today. And then, um, you know, a, a number of, I mean, there's so many things, but I remember also reading an article, uh, I think it was back in 2014, I was volunteering to translate some material for a Transform World Conference, just doing, you know, getting some money on the side. And I came across this article written by Anita Deinica and Ruslan Maliuta. Today, I am honored to consider them very close friends. And reading that article about the orphan crisis, again, just blew me away and, and just drew, drew my attention to God's calling to the church to respond to these needs. And, and so that really impacted me a lot. And then over the, over the next couple of years, I mean, there's been so many different books, but I think one that um, was particularly impacting was also the Creative to Connect. It's, it's a study guide that comes along with a connected child. And I found it in Spanish. So using that, it was one of the first resources I found in Spanish. And that really became sort of a, uh, it barrier breaker. And we started to understand because until then we had no clue about trauma informed care and, you know, everybody was just responding to kids needs as best they possibly could. And that really just brought such understanding to uh, what kids need. And, you know, just all of that, that training that we can receive building, you know, trust-based relationship uh, intervention. And then a couple of more to small to ignore from West Stafford or, you know, home for good, um, and there's so many more, but I, but I think these kind of uh, stories and experiences and testimonies really are so powerful. Yeah, no, I, uh, I love what you said there in regards to when that uh, TBRI resource uh, yeah. was made available in Spanish. Yeah. Uh, one of the things, you know, working in Tanzania for so long, there's no resources in Swahili. And we're not like <laughs> Kenya, where, you know, a lot of Kenyans speak English. Tanzania, that's not the case. Most people speak Swahili. And uh, that was something that we were passionate about and something I continue to be passionate about. I had a call earlier today with somebody that has some great uh, resources in child protection um, that I want to get translated. I want to get it in Swahili. I want to get it in Spanish, um, you know, those types of 
those types of things uh, can really um, just propel people forward um, to have resources in their language. So I actually love that you brought that up. Um, all right, last, last, last question. What person uh, has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? That's almost a, an impossible question to answer, but I, I'd have to say it's my grandma. And I, I didn't mention this um, because I, I don't think I realized it at the time, but I think a lot of um, who God, who I am before God and what he called me to actually uh, runs and turns out it runs in my blood. Uh, my grandma, as I mentioned, she was a refugee, you know, European descent refugee to Paraguay. She actually was orphaned by the time she was by the time she was 10, both parents, and she was separated from her siblings. She was fostered, you know, informally uh, in a really difficult situation without proper support, never really belonged um, or since felt belonging there. She ended up becoming a foster mom to Native kids that were left abandoned by their, their Indigenous communities. And, um, you know, as she started her own family and had kids, she was caring for these other kids. And somehow, I guess God just provided her with a lot of understanding of how to work with these children, help restore them, and then help reintegrate them, reunify them with their, with their communities. And so we know some of these... Um, foster siblings basically till today living in their indigenous communities. And I think what most inspired me, and, and I remember her telling us uh, stories uh, about that. And then I just was impacted by her understanding of God's heart for the fatherless and, and just this working with excellence and with such passion. And I think that has most impacted. Of course, then there's so many people that I've met over my life journey until now that have impacted me so much. And I think the main, the main thing that blows me away is, is those people that are so solid, so rooted in God, so in step uh, with what God is doing and such deep roots. And, and they're really living in a way that's, ref, you know, they're refreshed and, and vibrant spiritually because, you know, you and I, we know how taxing, how tiring, how overwhelming being in this, area of ministry can be, you know, the, the burnout is incredible of, of those that are serving and just understanding this um, real rootedness that we can have in, in God's spirit and God's heart uh, and just learning from leaders around the world of, of how they do that, that has impacted me a lot. And we're, we're still learning. <laughs> yeah. We're still learning to follow that. Yeah, that's awesome. We are all still learning. And uh, along that vein, uh, Anya, thank you for being on the show today and, and helping all of us learn not only what's going on in, in Paraguay, but also identifying some things that we can see in our own ministries and our own organizations to, uh, to, to help uh, orphans, vulnerable, at-risk children uh, better and better. So Anya, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. And, and thank you for the important work that you are leading out in Paraguay. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow, just such a great conversation that I had with Anya. You know, I just feel so honored not only to have that have been my first just one-on-one -on -one, uh, uh, interview, as I've heard some of the co-hosts be able to do in the past, <laughs> but to do that with somebody that just thinks well, I, you know, that's, that's just kind of what I think about, you know, you, yeah. you've had Gabe on the show, Gabe Lyons, and you know, it's all about, we want to think well, and Anya is just one of those people that just really kind of sticks out. Like, well, she's really thinking through and then acting, um, in ways that are God honoring, but also just kind of wanting to dig deeper. Uh, so it was a great, uh, opportunity to get to, to chat with Anya. Um, you know, Phil, uh, as you got to listen to it remotely, uh, not live, uh, what were some of the things that uh, kind of stuck out to you uh, from the conversation I was able to have with Anya? Well, like I said before the interview, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit envious. I'm a bit jealous. I'm not going to lie. That's, that's how I felt when Kelly Stewart got to interview Ian Forber Pratt and I didn't get to interview Ian. Like I was like, I got it. We got to again, we talked about, we, we talk about this often, sometimes on air, sometimes off. we got to get Ian back on. Boy, this isn't about Ian, but the point is, I, I want, I, every time I've talked with Anya, she's one of those people that, first of all, I love her story, but the thing that I love about Anya, is she has this quiet confidence. She's got this air of confidence, but she's also very humble 
right? She's, she's got this confidence, humility, which I think honestly is the, is true humility, which is knowing your source. She knows her source. She knows that God has given her opportunity. She knows that God has given her a brain that thinks the way it does the, that the way that the attorney, the legal, the legal mind is something I, I get. I understand that legal mind. And, and it's something that God brings to certain situations to do certain things. And I really see her in her sweet spot. And it's awesome. I love seeing people in their sweet spot and just to see the impact that she has had, not just in Paraguay, but throughout all of Latin America and the world through the world without orphans um, movement through the different things that they're doing throughout Latin America. And she didn't even talk about all of them. Um, and just the collaboration. I'm a collaborator, as you know, as anyone who listens to this show for two and a half minutes knows I'm a collaborator. She is, she collaborates. She works with others because she knows that we are better together. That's not just some cliche statement, right? So that, that's some of the things I always love hearing too, these parallel journeys that, that you hear in different people around the world, right? Not just an attorney called the orphan ministry, but just how, you know, she's, she's like, I was the misfit. I didn't expect God to use me in this little country of, of Paraguay, but yeah. he has, right. Which is cool. Yeah. And it's something like I see, you know, the way that God's used me, a guy who knows, you know, I knew nothing about this thing called orphan care when I got involved, but God's used me in ways that just blow me away. Right. And, and that's something that's so amazing. But the, the one thing from a content, like from an actual um, thing that she said, that I'd love to hear your thoughts on too. Cause I know you, you believe strongly in the same thing, but as she talks about the need and the importance of working across all sectors, Right. She's talking about government, she's talking about church, she's talking about, you know, with the organizations and the nonprofits and the NGOs. So um, that's the one thing that I, that I say, go back and, you know, if you didn't really catch that, go back and listen to that because that's so important. So one more thing, um, but I want to hear your thoughts on that too, before we get back into that one last thing. Yeah, no, I think it's huge. Uh, I definitely, we have to look at systems and that's one of the things that we've talked about and there's no, um, individual, no single organization that dictates what care looks like in a given setting. There is the government piece. There's the, there's the legal piece. There's the church piece. All of these things have an effect. So we really do have to be able to kind of step back to some degree and kind of look at the greater system and find those leverage points for, you know, what can we do to enhance all this system and also to get these different agencies or organizations to start talking with one another so that we can actually hammer out some of these things that are creating situations where kids are not, um, adequately cared for. Right. And that's, that's really what Anya has been doing with, with PPF. And, and also, as you mentioned globally with world without orphans and some of the ways that they collaborate. So, um, you know, it's, it's really, I think it's critical. I think it's absolutely integral that we do look at all those different pieces and how can we drive collaboration and, and address this at a systems level, um, which includes all those different entities. And, and for us as believers to make sure that the church um, is playing our role, you know, um, uh, to, to make sure that, that these kids are cared for. So, yeah, I, I think it's absolutely critical. And, and, you know, for me, one of the things that just sticks out is um, Anya, you know, kind of spearheading PPF. Um, but just having it, it doesn't need to be this huge entity to kind of initiate really, uh, drastic change and, and they're still on their journey. Um, you know, care reform, uh, hasn't been perfected in Paraguay. It hasn't been perfected in the U S or anywhere else. Right. Um, but for the opportunity for, uh, an individual or a smaller, uh, organization or movement, to really affect large scale change, I think is inspiring. And I think that that should hopefully be an encouragement to other people that are listening to the podcast, wondering, you know, what, what is our role and, and how far could our reach go? Um, I think that what Anya is doing and what Paraguay protects families is doing is, is, is an indicator that, yeah, you can actually start to initiate some, some broad scale change, um, in the place that God's called you. So, uh, yeah, just, just, I, I just so inspired and just so grateful for the time with Anya. Um, now Phil, you weren't able to be a part of the interview, but you're a part of this conversation. And I feel as though it is very fitting. If I turn to you and just ask you, brother, you got a recommendation for us, man. 
how, you know, you want to participate in the episode and give us something that's gonna, that's gonna continue the conversation on. What do you got yeah. for us, bro? I do have a recommendation. I do want to say one last thing. Oh, okay. Go out on you. And then I'm going to go right into that recommendation. Cause I do have something that's kind of a fun one today. It's a little different than the normal programming on the recommendations, but that's okay. Um, I've been known to do that in the past, so it's not too surprising for me to come out with kind of left field one. But um, the one thing, last thing is I want to, it's really important. I think one of the things she said about really orphan and vulnerable uh, childcare, OVC care down in, in Latin America, right? Um, and it's not just Latin America, but it's, I worked in Honduras for years. Now, what I've seen in these in the country, not just Honduras, but I've worked with people in Peru, Brazil, talk with people in Paraguay, talk with people in Costa Rica, other places. And it seems like one of the con- one of the constants is the governments are really hard to work with. But what I've usually found is that there's a lot of great people in the government who want to do the right things. It's important to find those people, but it's also important to realize that they're they're not the enemy. Right. And I think so many people think, oh, well, it's just corruption. It's just bad. It's just evil. It's just bad. No, it's just, there are there are people there. We need to find those right people and work with them. One of the struggles we have in Latin America is that the governments really change wholesale every four years or so in most of those countries. It's not like the U.S. where we have some continuity of power at some level, but it's wholesale. I remember one story in Honduras was the president's wife was in charge of all things orphan care, which is very typical actually. And then they got into a fight and basically he took her off of everything. And that, that happened, right? Crazy, right? So all the adoption stuff just kind of went to a halt. Everything went to a halt. So those are the types of things that happen, right? So to work with the government, to find those people, to find your allies, to find the people who will help and understand it and get it and really do have the best interests of the children in mind. Those are the people that we need to work with. And, and the hope and prayer is that we can get some continuity in that work. So I thought that was just really important, important enough to yeah. really kind of delay the recommendation. So it's gotta be pretty important, right? <laughs> but so. delay no longer, please. What's yes. your recommendation? So man? the recommendation is it's just, it's just kind of fun show. I'm actually forgetting what, what, you know, streaming service it's on right now, but it's called the mysterious Benedict society. Tony Hale of uh, fame on some different shows is the star. Love Tony Hale. Arrested yeah, Development, fantastic. man. Yes, he's Arrested so Development. He was on Veep. He was on a couple other things. But anyway, he's fantastic, right? He's a believer too. <clears throat> yes, he is. Yes, he is. I, I heard him at, at Q give a give a talk. Fantastic dude. This, this show is really interesting. It's it's a family for the family. We watched it with our kids. Um, it's, it's, it's the idea is there's this thing going on in society called the emergency, right? And it, it's you can put it the analogy to several different things right now. The most obvious right now is COVID, but it's this idea of, you know, the, the idea of brain beginning brainwashed, basically that's what this, this show is about and how we can be aware be aware of what's happening around us, be really listening to what is being said. I think from a Christian perspective, really how the enemy is subtly, putting things in untruths and lies, flat out lies, but usually they're subtle and it's something that we don't see. And it really is like that frog in the boiling water. I'm not going to give it away. It's a, it's a short series. I think it's six or seven episodes. They're all out right now. We just finished it done very well. It's a little weird. I mean, it's a little cheesy, um, but thought really good. And our kids were looking forward to each new episode. Um, and my wife and I really enjoyed it as well. So I, I encourage you to, to watch it actively, watch it and think about and have good conversations with your kids on it about what's going on right now, because there are so many narratives right now that are not biblical, that are not truth that are being put out there as if they are, and as if it's loving. And at the end of the day, if it's not biblical and it doesn't have the eternal biblical perspective um, it's not loving to help someone guide them to a place of that's not eternal joy and eternally being with our savior. So yeah. that is the, uh, the recommendation I have today. Say so, the title one more time. The mysterious Benedict society. Okay. I'm going to so, look it up, man. I love yeah. to know. Sounds like it's it fun. Sounds like a good You'll one. like it. You like it. Watch it with the kids for sure. Um, and, uh, so with that, you know, hopefully you check that out, but more, more than that. 
Anya was by far, you know, the star of this show. Right. So she was, uh, that interview is fantastic. Go back and listen to it. If, if you didn't hear some of the things that we just talked about, but, uh, most importantly with all this stuff that we're talking about here, I hope that you're not just listening to it and leaving it, but you're listening to it. You're engaging it, connecting with us. Um, whether it's on Facebook, whether it's with the email rate and review the show, um, to be able to help others, to be able to, you know, share it with those others in different ways. Word of mouth is the best way of sharing this show. But at the end of the day, I hope that what you're learning on the show, you're using it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day. Thanks a lot. Have a great couple of weeks. We hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. When you drive the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power, you can stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see yourself behind the wheel of the brand ranked number one in dependability by J.D. Power. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Kia received the fewest reported problems among all brands in the J.D. Power 2022 U.S. Vehicle Dependability Study based on 2019 models. See JDPower.com awards for 2022 details.